I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Have we been too careless with antibiotics? Fluoroquinolones like Cipro and Levaquin have some unexpected side effects. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. It took decades for the FDA to warn about tendon rupture with fluoroquinolones. Other unanticipated complications include aortic aneurysms and nerve damage. What other problems might patients experience with such antibiotics? Gout affects 8 million people in the United States. The pain can be excruciating. What causes gout and what can you do to prevent an attack? Have you ever peed when you sneezed, laughed, or lifted something heavy? Stress incontinence is a delicate topic, but very common. What can be done? Coming up on the People's Pharmacy Health Updates that matter to you. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. I'm a pharmacologist. And I'm Terry Graydon. I'm a medical anthropologist. Today, we're talking about the health news that matters to you. Have you ever had a gout attack? It can be excruciating. Once called the disease of kings, gout is actually surprisingly common. Find out how to prevent it and what to do about it if it happens. Have you ever peed a little when you coughed or sneezed? It's so embarrassing. Stress incontinence affects a lot of women, but you don't have to suffer in silence. There are some treatments that can help. We'll talk about that later in the show. But first, we're discussing the dangers of excess antibiotic prescribing. To learn more about this increasingly serious topic, we turn to Dr. Sarah Cosgrove. She's an infectious disease physician, the medical director of the Department of Antimicrobial Stewardship at the Johns Hopkins Hospital and a professor of medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Welcome to The People's Pharmacy, Dr. Sarah Cosgrove. I'm so happy to be here today. Dr. Cosgrove, we have looked on antibiotics for almost half a century as silver bullets. Patients love antibiotics, and so do doctors, because they work so well and they save so many lives. But it's reached a point where maybe our love affair is coming back to bite us in the butt. In other words... (laughs) You know, somebody says, I've I've got a sore throat, doctor, please give me an antibiotic. Or, oh, this sinus infection is driving me crazy. Can't you give me an antibiotic, please? And a lot of times doctors will go, okay, just to get the patient out of the office, sure, here's a broad-spectrum antibiotic, it can't hurt, might help. And away the patient goes with a smile on his or her face. What's wrong with that approach? So that's a great question. Um, And, you know, as you said at the beginning of your comments, you know, antibiotics really have saved innumerable lives and have made a huge difference in how we practice medicine today. And for that reason, those of us who are interested in the administration of antibiotics and doing it in the best possible way have the utmost respect for antibiotics. And we want to make sure that we have antibiotics available for all of our future generations. 
For patients who are not in the hospital and are coming into the doctor's office, in the vast majority of circumstances, they're coming with a cold. Uh, and colds overall are caused by viruses and not caused by bacteria. And so even if they've received an antibiotic in the past, that antibiotic probably before didn't actually do anything. And that antibiotic now is also likely not to do anything. However, you know, then why on earth does people sometimes feel better after they get this antibiotic that some of us would prefer that they not receive? Uh, well, in reality, colds have a natural timeline of getting better. And often by the time the person is sick enough to have, sick of having the cold enough, tired of being sick with the cold and goes to the doctor, that they're already about to turn that corner. Uh, and so if they do get a prescription for antibiotics, they can confuse the natural history of that cold that they were already going to get better with the receipt of the antibiotic being associated with that. And I do think that that has driven a perception that antibiotics help with a lot of these syndromes that are caused by viruses and where antibiotics are not expected to help. Dr. Cosgrove, there's an assumption that even if the antibiotic isn't really doing anything, at least it won't do any damage. I think we should really look at that assumption. Yes, I agree. And I think we're more and more starting to understand what antibiotics might do to us that we actually don't want done. Um, there are some basic side effects that I think many people may have experienced related to different antibiotics. Uh, some people have had a rash uh, from antibiotics. Some people have experienced GI upset where you just don't feel good, a little nausea, sometimes some diarrhea that is often pretty clearly associated with taking the pill uh, and then gets better after a few hours. But there are also more serious consequences of antibiotics. You know, first, and the one we definitely worry about in the United States is a bacterial super infection, if you will, called C. difficile. And this is a more severe form of diarrhea uh, that results from the antibiotic that we're taking affecting the good bacteria in our guts uh, and then allowing this kind of beastly bug to take over. And that bug makes toxins that cause a huge amount of inflammation in the lower GI tract and can cause very severe diarrhea. Uh, and often, uh, if severe enough, patients might have to be admitted to the hospital. Well, I'd like to talk about a completely different set of side effects that even the Food and Drug Administration didn't recognize was associated with a class of antibiotics called fluoroquinolones, FQs for short. And we're talking about household names like Cipro, Leviquin, uh, brand names that, that have really penetrated the consciousness of Americans. But the, the generic names, Ciprofloxacin, Levofloxacin, Norfloxacin, Ofloxacin, known by the brand name Floxin, and people have actually taken to calling it being floxed. Now, we're talking about <laughs> things like tendinitis, which sounds pretty unpleasant, but even something far worse called tendon rupture. But even more surprising to, I think, your colleagues and to a lot of patients is the fact that these drugs can affect the brain. Can you tell us about that, please? Sure. 
So just reflecting on this class of, of antibiotics, um, I think it's important to note that these are very broad spectrum antibiotics. And what made them become so, you know, such a part of the public consciousness was in contrast to other broad spectrum antibiotics uh, that we use in the hospital routinely, these antibiotics came in a pill form. And so, whereas if you went to your doctor and for some reason needed an antibiotic uh, and you were told, oh, you have to go to the hospital and get that antibiotic by vein, most people would say, well, is there some alternative you know, to that plan? Uh, but these antibiotics, despite being kind of what I would consider hospital-grade antibiotics, very broad, powerful antibiotics, came as a pill. And I think, unfortunately, that made them kind of really good targets for abuse uh, outside of the hospital. Uh, so that's why I think we all recognize those names that you just gave us. And it's also probably why we now are coming to understand some of these side effects uh, related to them because they've been used so much. So uh, tendinitis and tendon rupture uh, were a couple of the first side effects that came to the attention of the FDA related to the fluoroquinolones because people would be prescribed these as an outpatient, probably uh, going back to their often usual activities and all of a sudden have terrible pain, usually in the Achilles tendon, which is the tendon that is that big strip that's between your heel and the bottom of your leg. Uh, and, and if things progressed, as you said, uh, then uh, that tendon can rupture and then the person cannot walk and will likely have to have a surgical procedure to fix it. And that can lead to months of rehabilitation. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Yes. But you had asked me at the, at the beginning of what can the fluoroquinolones do to the brain? <laughs> and in addition to being kind of these potent antibiotics, most of the fluoroquinolones also penetrate into the brain. And not all antibiotics that we have penetrate into the brain. And for patients that are very ill with in infections involving the brain, like meningitis, it's great that we have antibiotics that can penetrate into the brain because obviously we want to kill those bacteria when they're in that place where we don't want them. Uh, however, uh, for most of our oral antibiotics that are used in the outpatient world, uh, they're not getting into the brain. And so there's a much lower risk that they would have any uh, side effects related to feeling confused or sleepy or other things that, that can manifest are manifestations of toxicity in the brain. Uh, and, you know, in rarer cases, patients have become almost delirious on fluoroquinolones particularly older patients. Dr. Cosgrove, obviously antibiotics are important when a person has a serious infection. How can we protect ourselves? Well, I, I think that there's a, a few ways. I, I think recognizing that antibiotics have side effects first is important. And we shouldn't view antibiotics as these really safe drugs uh, that, that are fine to take even if the possibility of a bacterial infection is very minimal. So that it's, it is a change in our mindset that, that we have to make. And once we realize that, I think we have to have a different conversation with our medical providers when we go to see them uh, with a concern that maybe antibiotics are needed. We actually know uh, that there's 
probably a disconnect uh, between patients and doctors when it comes to antibiotics. That being that doctors will often think that the patient's primary goal is to get an antibiotic out of a visit. Uh, but most patients will say, no, it wasn't. that wasn't my primary goal. I may have some feeling from past experience that an antibiotic may help, but I'm not walking into the appointment saying, I must have an antibiotic, even though sometimes the doctor interprets it that way. And so what can we do about that? Clarity of communication. So a patient coming in to see a doctor can even say, you know, I'm not coming to, to ask for an antibiotic. I'm, I'm coming because I, I want your professional advice about how can I feel better. And, you know, we could almost do that, like, you know, change what, what we say. Like, I, I don't actually want an antibiotic unless an antibiotic is truly needed for what I have. Uh, and I think if more of the time we did that, then that would change that situation between the doctor and the patient for everyone to be focused on what really needs to happen, which is feeling better. Dr. Sarah Cosgrove, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you for having me today. You've been listening to Dr. Sarah Cosgrove. She's an infectious disease physician and medical director of the Department of Antimicrobial Stewardship at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. She's also professor of medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. After the break, we'll be talking about gout. How can you take care of your joints if you develop this painful condition? We'll also find out about natural ways to lower uric acid with diet and lifestyle. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy podcast is sponsored in part by Kaya Biotics. K-A-Y-A Biotics offers the first probiotics, which are both certified organic and hypoallergenic. All probiotics are produced in Germany under laboratory conditions with high-quality ingredients and under strict regulatory oversight. The three available formulas are created for very specific purposes, such as strengthening the immune system, fighting yeast infections, and helping with weight loss. To learn more about Biotics probiotics and the important topic of gut health, you can visit their website, KayaBiotics.com. That's K-A-Y-A Biotics.com. Use the discount code PEOPLE for $10 off your first purchase. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. If you would like to purchase a CD of this show, you can call 800-732-2334. Today's show is 1,172. That number again, 800-732-2334. Or you can find it at peoplespharmacy.com. You can also download the podcast from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Verizama, an analytical laboratory providing home health tests for hormones, gut health, and the microbiome. Online at V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A dot com. We're talking today about health conditions that are often overlooked. Gout affects about 8 million American adults. It's more common in men than women. What are the symptoms and how can you treat it? 
to learn about gout, we're talking with Dr. Chad Deal. He's head of the Center for Osteoporosis and Metabolic Bone Disease and a board-certified rheumatologist at the Cleveland Clinic. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Chad Deal. Hi, it's nice to uh, be here today. Thanks for inviting me. Dr. Deal, we recently got an email message from uh, a fellow named Andrew who wrote, I have been recently diagnosed with gout. I have yet to figure out what gout is, what the symptoms are prior to an attack, and how can I follow a good gout diet? There's too much contradiction in what I've been reading. I've been to three different doctors and have not gotten consistent answers to simple questions. Two things are consistent. Allopurinol is offered as the first line of defense, and the second is to do a Google search for a gout diet. So the question is, what is gout, and what else can you tell us about taking care of your joints if you have gout? Gout is a what we call a crystal-induced arthritis. So it's caused by uric acid crystals that come out of the blood and into the joint, and when they're in the joint, they become very inflammatory. Uh, they typical presentation is acute onset of joint pain. More than 50% of the first attacks are in the big toe, but they can really occur in any joint in the body. So prior to the first attack, there really are no symptoms unless your doctor has gotten a uric acid level, in which case, in the great majority of cases, the uric acid in the blood, which is the source of the uric acid crystals, will be elevated. But it's really asymptomatic until that first gout attack occurs. Once now, you have the first attack, you know, there may not be another attack for years, or there may be many, many attacks. Now, Dr. Deal, I've seen pictures of those crystals, and they're nasty-looking guys. I mean, it... It, it seems like if they get into your joint or your, your soft tissue, man, they're going to tear things up. Yes, they're very long, and they, they activate uh, a pathway we call the inflammasome, and that is a very inflammatory pathway in the body that accounts for much of the inflammation. They're large enough that they really cause lysis of the white blood cells that are attracted into the joint, and then the white cells have lots of toxic lysozymes that really create havoc in the joint. And it's one of the most painful forms of arthritis that you can have. Once you've had an attack, uh, you really want to try to prevent the next attack. Uh, and that's where the physician comes in to try to make a decision about what the best treatment. It's not always allopurinol. It could be diet, as you mentioned before. It just depends on the history of the the patient and what precipitated or may have precipitated the attack. Do we know what triggers a gout attack? Well, other than the high uric acid levels, the in terms of diet, the biggest offender is alcohol. So a very characteristic pattern would be uh, a binge drinker who drinks and alcohol does two things. It not only provides uric acid substrate, but it also decreases uric acid excretion in the kidney. So that's really a double whammy. But even less 
binging and more modest drinking can increase the frequency of GAD attacks. So one of the recommendations often is to try to limit alcoholic beverages if if you have difficult to control gout. Now, Dr. Deal, I've heard that um, gout is the disease of kings, presumably right. because of all that alcohol they had access to, but maybe their diet as well, because we've heard all kinds of, as our reader said, contradictory things about diet. You know, too much protein, too much of this food or that food. Any thoughts about what kinds of foods can actually trigger high uric acid levels in combination with too much alcohol? Yeah, so the foods that are highest in uric acid are organs. So uh, liver, uh, pancreas, uh, GI track organs, brain even, which we don't eat very much, but those are the most significant sources of uric acid. In in most cases in my practice, I ask patients to reduce their alcohol and void organ meats. Um, uh, but I, if I can control the gout with those two things, I don't ask them to exclude many other food like beans and legumes, which have more modest amounts of uric acid. Now, you said the big toe is often a target. Did I hear 50% of the time? If At least 50%. It's the first attack, and by the end of the gout, attacks over years, it'll, it will have occurred, occurred in the big toe probably in at least 90% of patients. Why? why? Why would those crystals target the big toe? Well, one theory is that uh, uric acid is less soluble as the temperature is lowered. And so the further you get away from your heart, the lower the blood temperature is. So the solubility is less in, in a distal joint. But why the big toe and not the little finger, we're not sure. Or the little toe. Or the little toe. Yeah, it's, it's often the big toe. It's a bigger joint with, lot, with more fluid in it. And it's, it's subjected probably to more trauma, more weight bearing. So there are probably some other factors that are involved. Now, you mentioned alcohol, you mentioned organ meat, you didn't mention drugs. It turns out tens of millions of Americans are taking medications, in particular diuretics, because they have high blood pressure, that raise uric acid levels. Do you sometimes see patients who have elevated uric acid levels and ultimately gout as a result of the the drugs they're taking? Yes, we do, and it's a difficult situation sometimes because patients may have to take a particular drug, say a diuretic for heart failure or for hypertension, uh, and you know you have to treat the underlying disease too, but there may be some other choices you can make. In the case of hypertension, for instance, you could use a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker or an ACE inhibitor instead of a diuretic in many cases, so you can modify the medication regime to kind of reduce the, the, the medicine risk factors that precipitate gout attacks. Dr. Deal, when a person has high uric acid levels, are there any other tissues that are affected, perhaps besides the big toe, certainly, or even besides joints? Are there other negative sure. consequences? Yes, there are. I mean, a really awful example of what gout can do is that there's a syndrome called Lesch-Nyhan syndrome. And these are 
kids who have genetic defects in uric acid metabolism, and they can get very severe deposition of, of TOFI, which are accumulations of uric acid crystals in the brain, for instance. But in the usual patient, that's not as frequent. But when gout is significant, gout crystals can accumulate in soft tissue especially, and that's where we call them TOFI, so over the elbows or over the Achilles tendon uh, and in other soft tissue places, even in the ear, for instance. I remember diagnosing a patient with gout who had tophaceous deposits in the ear. We, but we've described that gout crystals and TOFI have been described in almost every organ in the body, including the central nervous system, not only the brain, but the spinal cord, the heart, the lungs, everywhere. Dr. Deal, I'm sure that most of your patients definitely want to have treatment to take care of the pain. Are there other reasons why it's important to um, lower uric acid levels? Well, there is, there is an association of high levels of uric acid with the development of renal insufficiency or, or cardiovascular disease. So there's some reason to, to lower uric acid independent of the effects related to the effects on the joints. Some of that uh, research is percolating now and is not absolutely convincing or final, so uh, stay tuned for more information on that. But there's enough enough data that there's probably a reason to think about it uh, as more than just a joint disease. Well, all you have to do, I suspect, is have one attack of gout, and you surely do not want to have another one because, as, as you described it, the pain is excruciating. What do you generally do for a patient? I, I assume, first of all, you know, a pain reliever of some sort, perhaps an NSAID, and then a drug to lower the uric acid levels like allopurinol. It's been around for decades but there are side effects associated with both of those classes of medications. Uh, how do you kind of balance the benefits and the risks, and how often do people need to be monitored for their uric acid levels? So the typical uh, teaching would be after the first attack, you try to do dietary and lifestyle modifications, and that may be the food uh, that we talked about and alcohol. And in probably at least 50% of the cases, there'll not be another gout attack for a year or two. So we usually don't jump to medications after the first attack. We wait until the attacks have become frequent enough that the patient doesn't want to have repeated attacks because they're either too painful or they're disrupting in terms of their work um, or their lifestyle. So there's no firm guideline, but after somebody's had two or three attacks in a given year, most physicians will start a uric acid-lowering medication. Once you start something like allopurinol, we usually repeat the uric acid level in a couple of weeks. It only takes 10 days or two weeks to come to baseline, and then we decide on the appropriate dose. So for allopurinol, typically we'll start at about 100 milligrams, repeat the uric acid in two weeks, and if we need more, we go to 200 and then 300 and 400. There's some patients that are on a thou as much as 1,000 milligrams of allopurinol. So the dose is really uh, driven, uh, is, is a target level of uric acid 
less than six milligrams per deciliter. That's what we shoot for. And if you have TOFI, that's the accumulation of gout in soft tissue, we really like to have that level below five. For people who have renal insufficiency, we'll often use a drug like Euloric. I would like to ask why you would choose Euloric for people with renal insufficiency, and I would also like to ask about the side effects of allopurinol. Okay, so um, allopurinol is uh, metabolized and excreted based on uh, creatinine clearance. So you have to reduce your dose of allopurinol if your creatinine clearance is reduced. Uh, You can use it in patients with renal insufficiency, but you have to be much more careful because uh, you you can get something called allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome. So in its worst case, the syndrome is associated with severe uh, skin rash, for instance, sometimes even something we call Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And it can also be associated with hepatitis, uh, liver damage. So it's, it's a rare adverse event, but it's something that is a concern. We have some listeners who would prefer to try to control their condition, whatever it might happen to be, without medications, with natural approaches. You have mentioned that the first step is diet and lifestyle. You have mentioned that the first lifestyle step is to stop drinking any alcohol. Can you tell us more about diet and are there other lifestyle measures that people should be looking at? So we, I think we mentioned a little bit, we mentioned red meat, we mentioned, we didn't mention fish is another food that has relatively high levels of uric acid. There's some beans and legumes also. So uh, depending on how strict you want to be, you know, you can, and how much you don't want to take a medication, you can ratchet down the uric acid in your diet and hopefully uh, get to a point where you won't have uh, attacks. I mean, and, and it's very reasonable to try that in in patients uh, because, you know, the first few attacks, while very, can be very painful, they're not going to do any damage in terms of the patient. But eventually, if you're unsuccessful and you're having frequent uh, gout attacks, those are the patients that end up developing joint, actual f- joint damage, not only inflammation in the joint, but you can really damage your joint uh, with multiple attacks of gout and accumulation of, of crystals in in the joint and tophi in the joint. So a person who wanted to figure out which foods they might want to avoid should look up which foods are high in purines. Is that right? Purines, yeah. And you can, if you go, if you Google, you know, a gout diet, it'll give you a list of the 10 uh, foods that are the highest in purine content and add throw alcohol in that uh, group, and then you have a very good pathway to reducing that in your diet and hopefully controlling it without medications. Great. We have had some listeners tell us that cherries, drinking cherry juice or eating cherries actually was helpful, and there is some research suggesting it might lower uric acid. Is this worth pursuing? Well, I think cherries, there are a few studies that, that show a beneficial effect. And my understanding of that literature is that it, there may be some uh, anti-inflammatory properties of the cherry and there may be a, quote, anti-inflammatory diet. And that's probably where that originates. I don't routinely recommend that in my practice, however. 
So, Dr. Deal, your overall perspective on uric acid levels, gout, uh, if someone is, for example, taking a blood pressure pill that has a diuretic in it and they start to feel some joint pain and maybe even have a little ache in that big toe, should they ask their doctor for a uric acid level? I think that's a reasonable thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And if it's high and if they're symptoms you some people won't have a, a massive attack the first time some people have these petite attacks where they have aches and pains in the joint before they'll have a massive attack so that may be prodromal symptom to gout and it's why I think it's worth evaluating with a uric acid level and making some alterations in the in either the diet or the medication Dr. Chad Deal thank you so much for telling us all about gout today on the People's right. Pharmacy Thanks you're welcome You've been listening to Dr. Chad Deal. He's head of the Center for Osteoporosis and Metabolic Bone Disease at the Cleveland Clinic. He's a board-certified rheumatologist. And remember what Dr. Deal said, you know, if you're taking a blood pressure pill, there's a good possibility there's a diuretic in there. And if your big toe starts to hurt, ask your doctor to test you for uric acid levels. After the break, we'll talk about an embarrassing situation. Have you ever lifted something heavy and leaked a little? Urologists classify leaks as due to stress or urgency incontinence. What's the difference? How are these two types of problems treated? We'll discuss the pros and cons of surgery and medications. What's a non-drug treatment that could be helpful? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This People's Pharmacy podcast is brought to you in part by Verisana.com. Verisana Lab offers home health tests that allow you to monitor your hormones and health conditions. You can take control of the quantitative assessment of your health and learn about male and female hormone balance, the stress hormone cortisol, leaky gut, gluten intolerance, or your gut microbiome. Take a more active role in tracking your health and take 20% off your first order of a mail-in testing opportunity with the discount code PEOPLE. That's uppercase P-E-O-P-L-E. To learn more, go to verisana.com. That's V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. If you would like to purchase a CD of today's show or any other People's Pharmacy episode, you can call 800-732-2334. Today's show is number 1172. The number again, 800-732-2334. Or find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. You can also download the free podcast from Apple, Stitcher, or our web store. We invite you to consider writing a review. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, probiotic products made in Germany from certified organic ingredients, K-A-Y-A-Biotics.com. 
We're talking today about some common problems that aren't discussed very often. One that's rarely mentioned is urinary incontinence. It's embarrassing to talk about it. But it isn't just an old lady's problem. Young women may also find they pee involuntarily when they sneeze or laugh too hard. What can you do about it? Our guest is Dr. Peter Jepson. He's Division Director of Urogynecology at University of New Mexico. He's board certified in both obstetrics and gynecology and female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. Dr. Peter Jepson, welcome to the People's Pharmacy. Hello. It's great to talk to you today. Dr. Peter Jepson, you're the senior author of a a recent study in which researchers looked at a variety of treatments for stress and urgency urinary incontinence. First, can you tell us how common this condition is and, and, and what is it exactly? How do you define, for example, stress incontinence? Certainly. Uh, So uh, urinary incontinence is a very common condition. It affects about uh, one in five women, so roughly 20%. Incontinence can be divided into different subcategories, uh, such as stress incontinence or urgency. Stress incontinence is the leakage of urine with laughing, coughing, sneezing, jumping, exercise, uh, anything that increases intra-abdominal pressure. Urgency incontinence is more of that sensation of uh, gotta go, gotta go right now, and it's it's a strong urge uh, that is difficult to defer and will, uh, for many women, will often result in leakage. Um, urgency tends to be larger volume leakage, uh, so it tends to be quite a bit more. Stress incontinence tends to be more drops and uh, tends to be more predictable. You can feel a sneeze coming on or uh, know that if you're going to laugh or something that you'll have a little leakage. So that's kind of a little background on those. Well, I appreciate you explaining the difference between them. How are they treated differently? So there are treatments that overlap for both. So in the systematic review we recently did, we kind of categorized all um, non-surgical treatments essentially. Uh, But for both stress incontinence and urgency incontinence, behavioral therapies such as timed voids or uh, Kegel exercises, you know, strengthening the the muscles of the pelvic floor, those have been shown to be beneficial for for both types of incontinence. However, there are differences as well. Um, Stress incontinence is uh, thought to be a... um, uh, a weakening or a, a defect, if you will, of the, of the urethra in that it's not able to, to maintain urine within the bladder. Um, so there are support devices or um, things that could be placed inside the vagina to offer support to the urethra to prevent leakage. Whereas for urgency incontinence, it, it's thought to be more related to muscle spasms of the bladder wall itself. And, and so there are medications uh, and other interventions specific to uh, bladder spasticity that will hopefully decrease those spasms to decrease leakage. Dr. Jepson, I suspect that a lot of people, when they hear the word incontinence, they think old people, you know, somebody who's over the age of 60 or even 70. And it is a problem for older people, for sure. But not everyone, even some younger people can experience stress incontinence. Am I right? 
That is certainly correct. You know, it is a problem that becomes more common with age for both types, both stress and urgency. Uh, Stress incontinence uh, does tend to present a little bit earlier, though, for women who are uh, active exercising those types of things. Um, They'll often present in in their 40s. Urgency tends to be a little bit later in life, but, you know, it can happen, you know, as as early as, uh, you know, teens or 20s uh, for either type. Uh, But again, it is very common and, uh, you know, pregnancy, deliveries, those types of things are often an inciting event for, for many women. Now, there are a couple of what I'll call controversial treatments, and one that's been used for decades has to do with uh, surgical mesh, synthetic mesh, that um, I suspect you and your colleagues have used for quite a long time. The Food and Drug Administration just said, "Uh uh-uh, no more. Mesh is out of there uh, when it comes to transvaginal treatment of what's called prolapse. So can you tell us what the problem was with mesh and what you can do instead, especially non-drug approaches? Certainly. So, you know, as, as far as mesh goes, um, and, and to back up a little bit, we've been talking a little bit about uh, urinary incontinence. The FDA ban is specific to mesh used for prolapse um, and, uh, you know, placed transvaginally. Kind of historically, prolapse is, is when uh, the, the vagina everts or kind of falls out and starts coming outside of, of, a, of a woman's body. Um, there are many different treatment options, non-surgical as well as surgical treatments for that. The, non, uh, the, the non-mesh-based procedures uh, use uh, stitches and, and, and a woman's uh, uh, natural or native tissue uh, for repair. Those repairs um, have not been as durable as, uh, as we would like, um, you know, and, and so because of that, uh, mesh uh, was started to be used for prolapse repair. When mesh is used, the repairs are more durable. Uh, you know, somewhere around 90% or so of women who have a mesh augmented repair will not have recurrence of prolapse. The downside to mesh is that mesh can cause problems, uh, pain, bleeding, erosions. Uh, mesh can end up uh, either in the vagina or in the bladder or other places that it is not supposed to be. Mesh uh, for bladder use is primarily founded upon the mesh that was used for abdominal hernia repairs. Um, and in the early 2000s, there, was a, there were many different types of uh, transvaginal mesh uh, procedures that were done. Um, and as data emerged, it showed that uh, the complications uh, may outweigh the risks. You know, I'd like to point out that as far as the FDA mesh ban goes, it is specific to mesh used for vaginal prolapse. Um, they did not ban the use of mesh for urinary incontinence. There are mesh procedures that can be done for stress incontinence that uh, have been shown to be quite effective. Uh, That is not to say they don't have complications, but the complications in general are um, are rare. Uh, Most are less than you know two or three percent, and and many of the the, you know the bad outcomes are are less than one percent. For stress incontinence, the most national and international organizations still consider it the gold standard treatment for surgical uh, therapy of uh, stress urinary incontinence, and that's based on many, many studies that have been published in the New England Journal and lots of other places. 
but the FDA ban on on transvaginal mesh for prolapse is, uh, I think it, it is big news. So I don't know if that's going to be a permanent thing if they're waiting on more research. I, I know that there are a couple of NIH-funded studies looking specifically at uh, certain vaginal meshes, and I don't know when that data comes out, if, the, if that would change uh, the ban or if, if the ban is, is permanent. But certainly there can be complications with, with the placement of transvaginal mesh for prolapse. Dr. Jepson, there have been many commercials on television encouraging women to ask their doctor about a medication for what appears to be either stress or urge incontinence. And, and these are mostly what we refer to as anticholinergic drugs. Can you tell us, A, how effective they are and what the downsides are? We've been hearing a lot about anticholinergic load and its effect on memory and uh, the central nervous system, the brain. Certainly. So, you know, as far as uh, anticholinergics, those are typically considered a treatment option for urgency incontinence. Uh, they're kind of anti-spasmodics or anti-bladder uh, spasm medications. They are effective, but they require daily dosing. You know, it, it's something you'd have to take a, a pill every day, and if you stop taking the, the medication, it stops being effective. Um, studies show that only about 50% of women who start an anticholinergic medication will still be using it at three to six months. And uh, part of that is due to efficacy and part of it is due to side effects. Uh, common side effects of anticholinergic medications are um, dry eyes, dry mouth, constipation, but uh, cognitive changes have been associated with uh, anticholinergic medication, uh, and that's not specific to you know the medications used for the bladder, uh, but as you mentioned, the anticholinergic load. If if patients are using anticholinergics, uh, you know for uh, different reasons, and, and many different medications fall in these categories, um, the the overall burden or load can certainly contribute to that. Um, there is thought, to, to my knowledge, it is not known whether those uh, effects are permanent or if they're reversible, but there have been some systematic reviews and uh, uh, kind of meta-analyses that show that over time that the patients that have been on, on these medications can suffer from confusion. And so that is uh, an important aspect of these medications that, that needs to be discussed with patients. Dr. Jepson, how effective are some of the non-drug treatments, yoga, physical therapy, acupuncture, bladder training, et cetera? So those in the systematic review we performed, those were all shown to be uh, very effective. The behavioral changes, uh, behavioral modifications, timed voids, uh, Kegel exercises, all of those uh, essentially have uh, minimal to, to no side effects. You know, there you, you go to the bathroom every two hours and so that you empty your bladder before you'd have a leakage event um, or you'd, you know, strengthen the pelvic muscles. And, you know, there are really um, minimal uh, potential uh, side effects to that to those interventions. Are there ways for uh, people to find professionals who can guide them in those uh, non-drug approaches? Certainly. Uh, you know, I think that a lot of this uh, can be done through your family practice doc or through your uh, internist. Uh, um, many of them are, are very comfortable and able to do this. There are specialists, either uh, urologists or urogynecologists, that would be, uh, you know, also very happy to, to see and to treat patients with these issues. Um, you know, one thing I was going to comment on, you know, as far as the efficacy of the, the kind of the non-medical treatments, 
those have been shown to be effective and they are effective. One of the things to consider when looking at the data for um, anticholinergic medications or some of the more advanced therapies, you know, you mentioned acupuncture, um, which uh, we call uh, posterior tibial nerve stimulation. That's uh, basically a TENS unit attached to the acupuncture needle. Uh, you know, patients have to have failed prior treatments before advancing to a medication and then advancing to something like PTNS. And so we tend to see the, the kind of the more refractory patients advancing. Uh, but certainly for, for any woman suffering from urinary incontinence, starting with these uh, non-invasive or, or less invasive interventions, I think, would be advisable. How effective are treatments? I mean, can a woman who is dealing with these rather embarrassing, sensitive issues, can she get successful treatment? Yes. The, the short answer is yes, most definitely. Um, and again, every every woman is different. And so, uh, you know, what I recommend to patients when I see them is let's start with the, the less invasive options. If that relieves your symptoms and improves symptoms, we don't need to proceed with more. Uh, you know, one of the things to, to consider with these is, is these are quality of life issues, right? And, and that is not to say that they are not impactful. They are very impactful uh, to a woman's life and can be quite debilitating. And many women choose not to leave the home or not to go out because they're afraid of accident episodes. But it is not cancer. It's not like something has to be done. And so when I'm counseling patients and discussing options with them, Ultimately, the decision is up to the woman as to how much or how little she wants to do. Uh, and, you know, some women, you know, come in and they're completely bothered and want to do anything possible. And other women can come in and say, you know, it, it really bothers me, but I'm just looking for some improvement so I can get back to such and such activity or not have to worry about things with, with uh, you know, when I go to the grocery store, but I'm not looking for complete continence. So it, it does very much depend on the woman and her individual goals. Dr. Jepson, when someone has tried all of the non-drug approaches and done everything they can, including exercises and the pelvic floor strengthening that you mentioned, and then they end up in your office, what is sort of the, the last approach that you would recommend? What would work as sort of the, the, the ultimate solution to this problem? So the answer to that depends on the type of incontinence that, that the woman is presenting with. If, if uh, she has stress incontinence, which again is leaking with laughing, coughing, sneezing, uh, the surgical options uh, would involve uh, a mesh sling, which is a narrow piece of mesh that goes underneath the urethra to offer support. Uh, again, that is considered the gold standard by the by all national and international organizations, but it is a mesh procedure, and some women choose not to have mesh. Um, alternative options, uh, there are sutures that can be placed in the pelvis. Uh, they go on either side of the urethra and uh, lift and support the urethra to the back of the pubic bone. Another option would be to use a, a woman's, to harvest tissue from a woman, so fascia, uh, which is tissue that surrounds muscle, that can be taken from the lateral thigh or from the lower abdomen, and that can be used to to fashion a kind of a native tissue sling. Uh, it's called a pubovaginal sling that would go underneath the, the, the urethra and bladder neck to offer support to prevent leakage. Again, uh, based on the data, um, the data would support the mid-urethral sling as providing the, the best long-term outcomes with the fewest complications. As far as overactive bladder or the urgency incontinence, 
um, kind of third-line treatments or surgical treatments for that, and not all of these are surgery, but the, the PTNS, the posterior tibial nerve stimulation that we talked about, that acupuncture needle with a, attached to electric current, uh, that's considered a third-line treatment uh, that has been shown to be effective. Um, Interstim, which is a, basically a pacemaker for the bladder, uh, it can be implanted in the, in the posterior hip, and uh, electric current uh, modulates the nerves that go to the pelvis, and that has been shown to be helpful for, for overactive bladder. Or Botox can be injected into the bladder, and, and Botox uh, decreases muscle spasms of the bladder and can help and decrease uh, overactive bladder symptoms as well. So, you know, um, I don't know that I think of those as like the the ultimate, uh, you know, last step. I think of them as kind of a tiered approach. And you kind of, again, typically would recommend starting with less invasive therapies and kind of working our way up to these, these more advanced therapies keeping in mind that patients who respond well to the initial therapies would not ever progress on to these more advanced therapies. And so the advanced therapies are effective, but we're also treating patients with more refractory or more difficult disease. Dr. Peter Jebson, thanks very much for talking with us on the People's Pharmacy today. Sure, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. You've been listening to Dr. Peter Jepson, Division Director of Urogynecology at the University of New Mexico. He's board certified in both obstetrics and gynecology and female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. Earlier, we were listening to Dr. Chad Deal, head of the Center for Osteoporosis and Metabolic Bone Disease at the Cleveland Clinic. He was talking about gout. We also spoke with Dr. Sarah Cosgrove. She's an infectious disease physician and the medical director of the Department of Antimicrobial Stewardship at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. She's also professor of medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wodarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. The People's Pharmacy is produced at the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. The People's Pharmacy theme music is by B.J. Lederman. If you would like to purchase a CD of today's show or any other People's Pharmacy broadcast, you can call 800-732-2334. Today's show is number 1,172. The number, 800-732-2334, or find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. When you visit our site, you can share your thoughts about today's show. Tell us your story. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter or subscribe to the free podcast of the show. You'll never miss another episode. You can even share it with a friend. When you sign up for the newsletter, you'll get our free e-guide to favorite home remedies. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thanks very much for listening. And please join us again next week. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If so, please consider taking a minute to write a review on iTunes. And thanks for listening to The People's Pharmacy.